And as I was singing with you all, as we were all in unity lifting up our voices in praise to Almighty God, it occurred to me the Christian life is worth it. It's not always the easy life. It's not always the smooth life. But it is life of joy. It is life of meaning. And it's worth it. So it is a privilege for me to have sung with you this morning, and even more so a privilege for me to bring the word of God this morning before you. And as we begin, let us open with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, as we approach this hour, as we approach hearing from you, we affirm the sufficiency of scripture above all earthly opinions, above all earthly philosophies, above all earthly powers. We affirm the supremacy of Christ above all earthly kings above all earthly joys, above all other gods. And we affirm the supernatural ability of your spirit to save sinners, to change hearts, and to transform lives. So this morning, we pray, O oh God, that you would come in power, that you would move among us for the sake and the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. What is the most shocking text in the Bible? What is the most shocking passage in the Bible? If you have ever read the Bible, you know that it is filled with some rather shocking texts. A few come to mind. How about Genesis 32, where God wrestles with a man. Or how about 2 Samuel 6, where Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark and then is killed for it on the spot. Or how about Revelation 12, where a woman is in labor and there is a dragon waiting to devour her baby. And if you're ever talking about the most shocking texts in the Bible, well, you have to mention the last few chapters of Judges, which tell the truly shocking story of a priest who dismembers the dead body of his concubine and sends the parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. These are some truly jaw-dropping, eye-opening texts. What is on your list of the most shocking texts in the Bible? Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that there is one text which is equally as shocking in its own right, and yet it is never mentioned alongside these other passages. It should be on the list of the most shocking texts in the Bible. Perhaps it may even be the most 
shocking of all. What text is this? Turn with me in your Bible to John 3.16. John 3.16. John 3.16, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, recorded by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that is shocking. That single sentence is one of the most shocking string of words in the Bible. In our day and age, John 3.16 is the most widespread verse of Scripture. It is the most memorized, most recognizable, most famous verse of the Bible. Even in popular culture, you see John 3.16 more than you see any other verse. Athletes write John 3.16 on their uniforms or their eye black. People hold up this verse in picket signs on the street. As you drive, you see the words written on billboards hanging over freeways. Sadly, due to its familiarity, most of America yawns at this verse. It has become so commonplace, so familiar to us, that it has lost its original shock value. Well, I would like to reverse that trend here this morning. I would like to see John 3.16 in its original context, uncover its original meaning, so that we can see just how shocking it is and just how amazing it should be. So this morning... John 3.16, I would like us to see five shocking truths about the love of God. Five shocking truths about the love of God. First, a shocking source. God loved. God loved. Let those two words sink in, if only for a moment. God loved. Those two words should carry with it immediate shock value. Now, if you are not amazed by those two words, then I dare say it is because you do not understand two realities. You do not understand the nature of God, and you do not understand the nature of sin. We in America take the love of God for granted. Our first reaction is, well, of course God loves us. What's not to love? America expects God to be merciful. Frankly, God redeeming sinners surprises no one. Have you ever noticed that when good things happen, the media does not question anything? But when a hurricane comes or a tsunami kills people, then we want an explanation. Mankind shakes his fist at the heavens and thunders out, how can a loving God do this? Explain yourself, God. We deserve better than this, God. Why aren't you loving us, God? 
We expect God to love us. We expect God to love the world. We feel entitled to the love of God. Because after all, that's what God does. God loves. Does he not? I mean, after all, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says God is love. Does it not? True. I grant you that. But you know what the Bible also says? The Bible also says our God is a consuming fire. The Bible also says God is holy, holy, holy. In order for us to see how shockingly great the love of God is, we must consider the object of his love. We must see how staggeringly sinful we are. We must see how incredibly wicked we are. The amazing part about God's love is not that he himself loves, it is that he himself loves us. And that should shock us. Listen to how scripture describes us in our fallen state. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. James 4.4 calls us enemies of God. Romans 8.7 says we were hostile toward God. We human beings were dead cosmic rebellion against God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at war with God. We were enemies with God. We were hostile towards him. That's who we were in our fallen state. And because of our sin, we are nothing less than sinners in the hand of an angry God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we are not shocked by John 3.16, it is because we do not feel the wrath of God. We do not sense the wrath of God. We do not see the wrath of God. We do not hear the wrath of God. We do not fear the wrath of God. Romans 9.13 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, the world gets so offended when it says that God hated Esau. But brothers and sisters, that is not the shocking part of that verse. If we really understand who we are as sinners and who God is as God, then it would not shock us that God hated Esau. It would shock us that God loved Jacob. Oh, friends, do you know the God of Scripture? Do you know the God of the Bible? Beware of the God of Scripture. Do not take him lightly. Do not yawn at the God of John 3.16. You do so at your peril. The love of God ought to shock us. It ought to amaze us. It should stagger us that a God this holy could love a people this sinful. It ought to shock us that the object of God's wrath is also the object of God's love. One of my friends in seminary 
told me this true story of one of the greatest examples he had ever seen of the love of God. He grew up in Taiwan, and when he was in junior high, there was an orphan boy in his school who killed one of his classmates. He murdered him. And for that, the orphan boy went to prison. Well, the mother of the deceased boy would go and visit her son's murderer in prison. And she was a Christian. And she would go and preach the gospel to him. Well, the orphan boy repented, trusted in Christ for salvation, and was saved. He was saved through the ministry of the mother. And after he got out of prison, eventually, she adopted him as her own son. She adopted her own son's murderer as her own son. She welcomed him into her family. This story of love moved the entire country of Taiwan. When you realize how undeserving we are of God's love, then all of a sudden, you will see God's love as amazingly glorious. You see, the shock value of this text matters. How you respond to this verse will tell you if you have been living your life by faith or living your life as a legalistic moralist. A healthy, vibrant Christian who is trusting God, walking with God, loving God, looks at John 3.16 and responds, I am amazed that I am a Christian. I am amazed that God loves me. A Christian is shocked at the love of God. He knows he cannot be entitled to the love of God. A Christian knows they can never merit the love of God. They can never earn the love of God. Not for a moment, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, not for an eternity. But a legalist approaches this text differently. A legalist is someone who is trying to earn their way to heaven. And Christians, too, can sometimes fall prey to a spirit of legalism. A legalist looks at this text very differently. A legalist reads John 3.16 and says, Well, of course God loves me. I've done everything God has asked of me. I come to church regularly. I give offering regularly. I pray, I go to the Bible studies, I live a moral life. I have done everything that God has asked of me. Of course God loves me. A legalist is not shocked by this verse at all. You see, here's the difference. For a Christian, there is no of course. A Christian thinks, I owe God for his great love towards me. A legalist thinks God owes me for my great love towards him. So friend, I ask you this morning, of what spirit are you? Do you yawn at John 3.16? Do you shrug your shoulders at John 
Here is the litmus test. Does John 3.16 still amaze you? Do you have a spirit of wonder at John 3.16? Are you amazed that God loves you? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Behold the wonder of the love of God. How you respond to this verse will tell you a lot about your relationship with God. Secondly, a shocking scope. A shocking scope. For God so loved the world. The casual American looks at this word world, cosmos in the Greek, and most commonly thinks it must mean every single person who has ever lived. God must savingly love every single person who has ever lived. God so loves the world, therefore God loves every single person who has ever lived so much that they go to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. In other words, John 3.16 teaches universalism. Now, to be sure, God does love all people in a general way. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. In one sense, it is right to say that God loves all mankind, for we are created in his image. God does have a common love for every single person who has ever lived. But does God love all people savingly? Does God love in such a way that every single person goes to heaven? Not if your name is Judas Iscariot. It is impossible for the word cosmos, world in the Greek, to mean that God saves every single person who has ever lived. It simply cannot mean that because it is qualified in the very same verse. The word world, cosmos, is specified for us. It is defined for us. Cosmos is qualified by the phrase, whoever believes in him. You could translate it like this. For God so loved in order that everyone believing in him should not perish. God so loved that all the believing ones should not perish. You see, God may love every single person in a general way, but God loves the believing ones in a particular way. God may love all people in a common way, but God loves the believing ones in a specific way a distinguishing way, a saving way. So then, if the word world does not refer to every single person who has ever lived, then what does it mean? I believe the word world, cosmos, means that God loves all kinds of people from all over the world. God loves all races of people from all over the world. God loves not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Christ saves people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Hendrickson calls this love an international 
love. God so loved internationally. God so loved from all over this world. God desired to take some out of all kinds of people from the tapestry of humanity and weave them together with his son. Revelation 5.9 gives us a picture of what this looks like in eternity. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation from all over the world. That is John 3.16, according to heaven. In other words, John 3.16 emphasizes the diversity of God's love, not the universality of God's love. Salvation is given not to all people without exception. Salvation is given to all believers without distinction. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether black or white, whether Asian or Hispanic, salvation is given to all believers without distinction. And that is shocking. When you say, well, What's so shocking about that? Well, remember, in John 3, 16, Jesus has been speaking with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And Pharisees believed, of course, that as long as you were an Israelite, God saved you. As long as you were an Israelite, you were in the kingdom. As long as you were an Israelite, you were going to heaven. We have Abraham as our father, they would say. The love of God was simple to the Pharisees. God loves Israel, but God does not love Gentiles. Leon Morris says the Jew was ready enough to think of God as loving Israel, but no passage appears in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. It is a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite. The heart of God is not just for Israel. The heart of God is for the nations. This was God's plan all along. Let us trace the unfolding plan of God throughout the scriptures. In Adam and Eve, God blesses a couple. In Noah, God blesses a family. In Abraham, God blesses a family to bless other families. In Moses, God makes a nation of families. And in the New Covenant, God makes a family of nations. Such is the international love of God. This was God's plan all along. But Nicodemus couldn't see it. He couldn't see it because he had deep-rooted discrimination in his heart. He looked down on other people. He was blinded to the international love of God because of his personal biases. So I ask you this morning, do you in any way, in any way, share the same spirit of Nicodemus? Do you ever look down on other people? Do you ever look down on other races or cultures? Do you ever have a feeling of racial superiority? 
class superiority, educational superiority? Do you ever look down upon other cultures? Now let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be really honest. We all have deeply rooted personal biases. Do your personal biases ever blind you to the international love of God? If you believe the gospel, the gospel means you never have the right to look down on anybody. The gospel says you are a sinner saved by grace. It says you are a sinner, which means you have fallen short, which means you're no better than anybody else. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the great equalizer. But it also says that you are a sinner saved by grace, which means you didn't earn this. You didn't do anything. This was given to you. And that means you never have the right to feel superior to anybody else. You never have the right to look down on anybody else. There's no room for pride with the gospel. There's no room for superiority with the gospel. There's no room for arrogance with the gospel. Let it be that Cornerstone shows the world this is a place where racism does not exist. This is a place where sexism does not exist. This is a place where discrimination does not exist. This is a place where arrogance does not exist. We must let the gospel root out our deepest personal biases. Thirdly, a shocking statement. Shocking statement. Everything in this verse points to the exclusivity of the gospel. John writes, God so loved the world. Now again, when most casual people read this verse, they think the word so means so much. God loved the world so much. Now it's true, God does love the world so much. That is not what this word so means. The word so does not mean so much. It means in this way, in this manner. How did God love the world? He loved it like so, like this. He loved it in this way, in this manner, in this fashion. You could translate it like this. It is in this specific way that God loved the world. God gave his only son. Therefore, contrary to popular belief, this word so is not universal and all-inclusive. Rather, it is exclusive and particular. God doesn't love the world in any which way you can imagine. God loves the world in a very specific way, in a very particular way, in his son. There's only one way to experience the saving love of God, in this way, in his only begotten son. The word begotten, again, points to the exclusivity of the gospel. In essence, begotten means one of a kind, one and only. God gave his one of a kind son, his unique son, his only son, his one son. There is only one son of the Father, and there is only one Savior of the world. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of the world. So we must understand that John 3.16 is not actually an invitation to believe. 
This is not an altar call. John 3.16 is a statement of fact, a statement of reality, a statement of truth, a concrete statement, a definitive statement. Jesus is saying to the world, there is only one way to eternal life, through the one God who has given his one son. In a world full of pluralism, we have the definitive statement of exclusivity. In a world full of polytheism, we have the definitive statement of monotheism. Now, such a statement is not only shocking to the modern man, it is downright offensive. People are surprised or even angered when you tell them that there is one God, one Savior, one salvation, one and only one. Now, someone might say, oh, you Christians, you are so narrow-minded. Your view of God's love is so strict, so limited. If I were God, I wouldn't just send one savior. I would send a hundred saviors, a thousand saviors. I would send a million saviors. If I were God, I wouldn't just send one. If he were truly loving, why did God not send more than one savior? Brothers and sisters, that is not the right question. The question is not, why didn't God send more than one Savior? The question is, why did God send a Savior at all? Why did God send even one? Because he loved. R.C. Sproul says, God loved the world enough to send only one. But he doesn't love the world enough to say you can ignore the only one. Fourthly, a shocking sacrifice. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, in what sense did God give his Son? Well, the context gives us the answer. John 3.16 begins with the little word for, which points us backwards in the text. It points us to John 3.14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, it is very important to see the overall structure of these verses. Notice the parallelism between verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The end of verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Sound familiar? Do you see the parallel phrases? These are two lines that give the same idea, two lines that are mutually interpreting. And of course, you know that if the last half of the sentences are parallel, so also are the first. This means that he gave his only son in verse 16 is parallel to the Son of Man be lifted up in verse 14. God gave his son when the Son of Man was lifted up. God gave his son on the cross. God handed over his son to death, even death on a cross. 
God gave his son as a sacrifice for sinners. The prophet Isaiah gave his perspective of John 3.16, 700 years earlier. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, he wrote, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Brethren, do you hear what this is saying? God so loved the world that he afflicted his only son. God so loved the world that he pierced his only son. God so loved the world that he chastened his only son. God so loved the world that he scourged his only son. Do you hear what this is saying, brethren? For God so loved the world that he crushed his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him should have eternal life. Oh, Christian, God so loved you that he crushed his only begotten son for you. God crushed him. He crushed him. God crushed him. One writer says, when the ultimate beloved child cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father paid the price in his silence. This is a shocking sacrifice. The cost of this sacrifice is unspeakable. Can I speak to you from the heart for just a moment? I have to say, Cornerstone, that I love you all. I love you all as my friends, my brothers and sisters, my church. I love you all. But I could never imagine giving up one of my children for you. I could never imagine giving up one of my little girls for you. I could never imagine giving up one of my daughters for you. And you're my friends. Imagine when God gave his only begotten son, we were not his friends. We were his enemies. This is an unspeakable sacrifice. And it is the price of this sacrifice which speaks to the power of it. The Apostle Paul reminds us that this sacrifice should give us the utmost confidence that no matter what happens, we will never be separated from his love. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a young Christian in Vietnam. He writes, I was ministering in Vietnam in 1971, and one of my interpreters was Hen Pham, an energetic young Christian. Hen and I traveled the length of the country and became very close friends before I returned home. 
We did not know if our paths would ever cross again. 17 years later, I received a telephone call. Brother Ravi, the man asked. Immediately, I recognized Hien's voice, and he soon told me his story. Shortly after Vietnam fell, Hien was imprisoned on accusations of helping the Americans. His jailers tried to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals and the Christian faith. He was restricted to communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese, and the daily deluge of Marx and Engels began to take its toll. Maybe, he thought, I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. So Hien determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or think of his faith. The next morning, he was assigned to the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly grabbed it, washed it, and after his roommates had retired that night, he retrieved the paper and read the words, Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hien wept. He knew his Bible and knew that there was not a more relevant passage for one on the verge of surrender. Oh, Christian, are you on the verge of surrender here this morning? Have you suffered so deeply have you cried out over and over again, O oh Lord, how long, how long, O oh Lord? Have you felt in despair? Have you gone through such trials that you doubt whether or not God even loves you anymore? John 3.16 tells you this morning, doubt no more. Doubt no more. If you ever doubt the love of God, Look at the cross. Look at Calvary. Look at Golgotha. God's love is not a vague, sentimental feeling. It is a love of cost, a love of sacrifice. And it was demonstrated once and for all at the cross. It is a love so deep, so wide, so long, so amazing that God would give his only son for you. Just know, O Christian. Just taste, O Christian that you will never be separated from the love of God, no matter what. Fifth and last, a shocking salvation. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who for his whole life has believed that you get to heaven by works, by works of the law by earning your way there, by keeping the law. But in John 3.16, Jesus takes the entire system of works righteousness and turns it on its head. You don't get to heaven by working. You get to heaven by believing. Faith alone in the Son of God. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, this self-righteous, top-of-the-top Pharisee, this teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, with all of your Phariseeism, with all of your righteousness, with all of your good works, you will perish. 
But the worst sinner who believes will have eternal life. And can you see Nicodemus's jaw just drop at that moment? In the words of Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. For those who believe, eternal revelry. For those who do not believe, eternal wrath. For those who believe, eternal joy. For those who do not believe, eternal justice. For those who believe eternal celebration, for those who do not believe eternal condemnation. There is more happiness and horror in this verse than we could ever imagine. There is more happiness and horror in this verse than we could ever dream. There is more gravity and gladness in this verse than we could ever imagine. Those who do not believe will perish. And you could also translate this word to destroy. Now, to be clear, to destroy does not mean to annihilate out of existence, as if you cease to exist once you die. If there is anything frankly obvious about the nature of hell, it is that hell is eternal conscious torment. That is what this word means. But I'd like to look at it a little bit deeper for a moment. This word perish or destroy occurs in something called the middle voice in Greek. It's a little bit technical, but stick with me. That's important. That's significant. The main thing to understand is that Greek has three voices, active, middle, and passive. We in English have two voices, active and passive. For instance, the active voice, Bobby brushed his sister's teeth. The passive voice, Bobby's teeth were brushed. But in Greek, there is a middle voice in which the action is reflexive. You perform the action upon yourself. So in this case, the middle voice would be Bobby brushes his own teeth. So if this verb perish or destroy were translated in the active voice, it would read, the one not believing will destroy others. And that's obviously not a good translation. If it were in the passive voice, it would read, the one not believing will be destroyed. And that is how most people understand this verse. And that's not a theologically incorrect statement. Actually, that is true. God is the one who carries out eternal punishment. But that is not actually what this verse is saying. In John 3.16, this word perish or destroy is in the middle voice. And so it literally reads, the one not believing in Jesus will destroy himself. You destroy yourself. You're performing the action upon yourself. It is reflexive. John uses the middle voice to tell us that those who do not believe are personally responsible for their final destination. It is not as if unbelievers are some helpless victims of total depravity, as if they really, really want to believe in Jesus, but they're forced not to. No. They chose this for themselves. They wanted this. John 3.19, the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Unbelievers would not believe because they loved the darkness. They chose the darkness, and in so doing, they destroy themselves. C.S. Lewis says, the damned are in one sense successful. Rebels to the end. 
the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They choose to lock themselves in. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, every unbeliever is a self-tormentor, a self-destroyer. He carries hell and executioner in his own bosom. If you're not a believer here this morning, John 3.16 is telling you that you are personally responsible for your final destination. You have heard the gospel. You have heard of the shocking love of God. And just know that if you will not believe, you rebel not only against the justice of God, you rebel against the love of God. The love of God is amazing. It is wonderful. It is stupendous. But it is because of your sin that you dig in your heels and you say, I will not be loved. I will not be loved by God. I refuse to be loved by God. For God so loved the world, but I will not let him love me. Oh, unbeliever, oh, friend, don't destroy yourself. Don't destroy yourself. Flee to the love of God. Delight in his love. Cherish his love. Wonder at his love. And don't take it for granted anymore. If you're a believer here this morning, I just want to say, sometimes the simplest truths are the most profound ones. Oh, Christian, you are loved by God. You are deeply loved by God. That is a simple truth, but that should be life-changing. We tend to judge whether or not today has been a good day or a bad day based on what has happened during the day. Today has been a good day if the kids behaved well. Today has been a good day if work went well today. Today has been a good day if I didn't argue with my spouse. But brothers and sisters, a good day has to go beyond these things. No, today is a good day because you are loved by God. You are deeply loved by God, and that will never change. One pastor friend of mine told me the story of when he pastored a church during the Persian Gulf War. One of the members of his congregation was an F-16 pilot during the Persian Gulf War. And when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, he was sent into Baghdad. And the pilot showed his pastor the internal video feed from his flight into combat. And you could hear the pilot breathing, something like this. And then all of a sudden you hear a beep, 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 beep. And that was a sign that someone had locked in on him, that he had a missile aimed right at him. And all of a sudden, you could hear the pilot veer to avoid the missile. And then you could hear him breathing again. And the pastor asked the pilot, what were you thinking in that moment? And the pilot said to him, you'd think I was thinking the most profound thoughts. 
But all I kept thinking was that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. This you know, for John 3.16 tells you so. Let's pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for your word, which tells us of your great love. Thank you, Lord, for the communion table, which tells us of your great love. Jesus loves us, this we know, for your word tells us so. And as we approach your table, let it be that we can also say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for this bread tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for this cup tells me so. We pray all these things in his most precious name. Amen.